You know, I'm glad that you're here today. It's no accident that God woke you up this morning that you're here. You know, we've been singing about Jesus Christ, our living hope. What a, what a blessing it is to be set free uh, from the enemy and from the bondage of death and, and sin and hell. And, you know, sometimes we hear that and we hear it too much. But I want to preach this morning out of Colossians chapter 2. And if, if you'll tune in for just the next few moments, the next several moments, uh, you're going to hear about what Jesus Christ has done for each one of us. You know, at the end of our service, we're going to have a, a little time of, of uh, um, invitation. And that invitation is for you. If, uh, if God leads you and the Holy Spirit guides you and you want to respond to him and, and respond to Christ this morning, I hope you will do that. Um, I know that he has done great things in my life. And if I didn't believe it with all my heart, I wouldn't be standing where I am this morning. But because he's my Lord and Savior and because I want others to have the same kind of redemption that I have had, I, I stand here this morning to preach and to proclaim the excellencies of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I hope that this morning that you will get a sense of how sufficient, and when I say sufficient, I mean how abundant, how plenteous, how overflowing Jesus Christ is because he is the source of our redemption. He is the one who has redeemed us. You know, it's a horrible feeling to be lost. When you're lost, you, you panic. Sometimes when you realize you lost, you, you're, you're lost, you, you panic. And, you know, have you ever experienced that, that feeling where you, you know, man, I don't, I don't know where I'm at and I don't know where to go. And I remember hunting uh, elk in, years ago in the, in the Ochico National Forest, Central Oregon. And I was with my father-in-law, and we were in an area that was unfamiliar to me. He grew up there, so he knew all of the, the ins and outs. He knew the land like the back of his hand, but I didn't. And uh, we were up there hunting, and we were supposed to meet up before dark and at a very specific and obvious place, and um, then return back to the truck together. And, you know, I'm out there hunting, and the, the beauty of the woods... You know, the, the colors, the, the, the wind was crisp, and just everything about God's creation really kind of distracted me from hunting, and hunting became secondary to just taking in the, the beautiful sights that I was seeing. And you know, the sun began to set, and um, soon I realized that I wasn't exactly where I needed to be. And uh, it got darker quicker than I thought it would. And uh, the path that seemed so clear only moments earlier now was hidden and I couldn't see where I was supposed to go. And um, after a few turns, I ended up being lost in the woods and I didn't know where I was. Didn't know which way to go. And you know, panic just grabs a hold of you in, in fear. I waited and I waited and pretty soon I heard a whistling noise. Of course, my father-in-law had suspected what had happened. And then I saw a beam of light. And he had a flashlight with him, and boy, was that light bright. I was never so happy to see my father-in-law than that moment right there. And you know what? With the help of his light, we got back to the truck, and we were headed home pretty quickly. Wasn't that far from where I was at. 
that I wasn't where I needed to be. But you know, this experience has been relived many times in everyone's life. I mean, the time of darkness might not have been in the woods, but darkness takes on many forms. You know, throughout our lives, we need someone to come to us and bring light for us so that we can see the path more clearly. You know, the picture of conversion that the Apostle Paul pictures here in this passage is like being lost and then being found. It's like passing from death into life. And the intention of Paul here in our passage, I'm going to read it in just a moment, is to show that Christ has done all that can be done and he has done all that needs to be done for our redemption. Jesus Christ has done everything that needs to be done and that can be done so that you and I could be with him for all eternity. You can't add anything to it. Jesus Christ has done it all. Listen to this as I read from Colossians. The Apostle Paul writes this letter from prison and he says this in verse 13. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. <laughs> Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Loving Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, Holy Spirit, even now as you guide us into all truth. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just search our hearts. And Father, that we would be found in you, Jesus. And if we are not, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw us, convict us, show us. Father, help us as we seek you this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I, I want to say about this first off that Christ brings about a spiritual resurrection. He talks here about going from death to life. He has made us alive. And, and what a beautiful thing is, you know, because when we talk about this sin, sin held humanity in its grip. Sin held us in its grip. Think about that. There is nothing that we could do. There is no way that we could compensate for that. There is no way we could atone for that. But sin held us in its grip. I think that's very significant. Because Paul talks about a couple of points here when he, he, he makes here. He says the uncircumcision of the Gentiles. They're hopeless situation outside of the people of God. In other words, if you were not a Jew, then you had no hope of salvation. 
You are outside of the hope of God's people. But what he's saying is because of Jesus Christ, our situation of hopelessness has come to a place of hope because of Jesus. You see, it was a symbol of their old nature. But God. Sin held humanity in its grip. But God. But God. In Jesus Christ has given a life so new, so vital, that it can only be described as being made alive. We have new life in him. See, the work of Christ is a work of power because it makes dead people alive. It makes dead people alive and it's a work of grace because it reaches out to all people. You know, Henry Nouwen, he he tells a story of a family he knew in Paraguay. The father was a doctor and and he was had been outspoken against the military there because of, you know, um, rights abuses. Um, people's rights were, were being abused. And um, the local police took their revenge by arresting and his teenage son and, and, and really torturing him to the point of death. And um, the townsfolks, they wanted to turn the funeral into this huge protest march. They wanted to make an example of things, but the doctor chose another means of protest. The father displayed his deceased son in the church the way he was found in the jail. The son was naked. His body was marked with scars from the electric shocks and the cigarette burns and the beatings. But he was not viewed in a casket like many deceased are today. But he was put on the blood-soaked mattress that was taken from the jail. You see, it was the strongest protest imaginable because it put injustice on ugly display. This happened. But understand, brothers and sisters, this is exactly what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ when he was crucified. Injustice was put on ugly display. See, the cross exposed our fallen world for what it really is, is a breeding ground of violence and cruelty. But Good Friday demolishes the instinctive belief that this life is supposed to be fair. Because when we look at the cross and we see our Savior hanging there, we know that life is not fair because he didn't deserve that. We also know that we did deserve that. That I deserve that. See, something deep inside us can relate to what happened on the cross. We know what it's like to be abused. We know what it's like being wrongly condemned. You know, even the most cynical atheist must admit that this life is cruel. I mean, that's their biggest argument, that a good God exists. Is, well, what about the, the, the cruelty and violence of this life? See, this great action of spiritual renewal, this, this resurrection, involves the forgiveness of our sins. I get excited about this. I mean, the state of spiritual death was marked by transgressions. We die because we sin. And morally, we're cut off from God. 
That's what this scripture is saying. We're cut off from God. And now all that has changed because Jesus Christ has made possible the forgiveness of our sins. He's brought about a spiritual resurrection. How did he do that? How did that happen? How did Jesus Christ bring about yours and my spiritual resurrection? I'm glad you asked. Now I can tell you. Look at verse 14. It says, Having canceled out the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Christ canceled the bond. Christ canceled the bond. You know, he, he's, he's the very source of our redemption because he canceled the bond. The, the word bond or uh, here we have certificate of debt is much like an IOU. <laughs> God, I broke your laws and so I owe you. The certificate of debt. It's an acknowledgement of debt, and the law of God not only stated our guilt, but it cried out for the penalty that is due for that guilt. See, Paul used the idea of a bond in his letter when he spoke to Philemon. He was requesting Philemon to receive Onesimus. And in verse 17, Paul writes this. He says, if then you regard me a partner... Accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing, with, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. He mentions that bond, that certificate of debt, if you will. In other words, charge it to my account. You owe me. I owe you. You know, in 1982, it was a great year, by the way. I graduated from high school, probably showing my age now. 1982. Um, there was another young man graduated from high school in 1982. And um, he graduated from Sarah High School in San Mateo, California. And he was a really fantastic baseball player. He was drafted right out of high school by the San Francisco Giants. But he decided to go on to college. And four years later, he was drafted by the Pirates. His name is Barry Bonds. He was a slugger. He hit tons and tons of home runs. You know, in, in um, 2007, August 7th, 14 years ago, he hit number 756. He, he beat Hank Aaron's record of home runs. In a career, and I think that's huge. And most, most of the talk about that new record, though, was whether or not it should really count. Because Bonds was allegedly, and, and later on he admittedly unknowingly, okay? That's kind of some strange terminology there. To, uh, to have used steroids, some type of cream or whatever, that it was a per performance-enhancing type thing. But sports buffs say if his name goes in the record book, it should be accompanied with an asterisk. The asterisk, of course, means that this record is a sort of record. It's a, a footnoted record. It really means, the asterisk really means that the record is tainted. 
The asterisk idea didn't go away. Mark Echo, the man who bought the ball with the 756 home run, he had an internet poll and he said, what should he do with the ball now that it's, it's all subject to being tainted? And that somebody said, they, they responded that they voted for him to brand the ball with an asterisk and then put it in the Hall of Fame. And in 2008, that's exactly what he did. See, having an asterisk by your name is something we should all be able to identify with. Scripture talks about the book of life, in which the names of each and every believer in Jesus Christ is recorded in that book of life. And with all the sins that we have committed in this life, you would expect that each one of us would have an asterisk by our name in the book of life, meaning tainted. I don't know how they got here. They shouldn't have got here. They cheated. They lied. They sinned. Don't really belong. But understand the word canceled here in verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of death, it literally means wiped away. It means scraped away. You know, in Paul's day, the, the, the parchment was, was hard to come by. And sometimes they would use animal hide. And what they would do is they would take something and, and scrape off the letters and then they would reuse that hide. And that's really what he's talking about when he says, having canceled out the certificate of death, it's been erased. It started over. It's a picture of what Christ has done for those who confess him as their Savior and Lord. When we confess our sin, we confess him as Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Our sins are removed in such a way that not a trace remains the verb is in the perfect tense, which means that the action continues. Our sins stand canceled. Our sins remain canceled. <laughs> I love that. You do too. In verse 15, moving on, it says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. See, Christ won a decisive victory on the cross. A decisive victory. The cross means both cancellation of the bond and defeat of the powers of evil. Both and. Just before Jesus died, he cried out in a loud voice, it is finished in John 9, excuse me, 1930. And so we have completeness in Christ. He finished totally and forever the forgiveness of our sins. We have a new life. We have been completely forgiven. And our legal standing involves one more thing. We have victory. We have victory Colossians 2, verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. What a wonderful picture of Christ's triumph over evil. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display, a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them through his cross. See, the word for disarmed is literally stripped. The word stripped. He disarmed the enemy. He stripped 
the enemy, as in stripping a defeated army, uh, army of their armor, taking off all of their weapons. And since Christ has won the victory and we belong to him, we also have victory. See, the powers and the authorities of this evil world stripped Christ of his clothes and his popularity, and they made a public spectacle of him on the cross. And they thought they killed him. (laughs) But God, in three days, he raised him from the dead. See, they thought they were, had done with, away with him. Little did they know that the victory belonged to Jesus. No longer does evil have any power over you because Christ has stripped Satan's weapons away from him. Think about this. He is disarmed. That's what it says. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, the only power the enemy has over you is the power that you allow him to have, that you give him, to deceive you, and to create fear in our lives. The only power the enemy has is the power you give him or you allow. I love this because the the cultural background speaks loudly into this. You know, when the Romans, when they won, they went off to fight their enemies and they defeated their enemies and won the war, they would, they would have a processional through Rome and, and they built arches and things and had a huge celebration there in Rome. And, and what they would do is when they would come back, they would, they would line up their, their prisoners of war, if you will, those who they had conquered in defeat, and they would make a public spectacle of them. And the parade would start off with the general who would ride in and, he, and, and, and show of strength. And he would have those that followed him were those that were victorious in the battle, those who were heroes of the battle. And then after that came the, 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 the rest of the army and they would follow in. And at the very end would come the conquered people. They would be bound, you know, their, their hands would be bound and they would be following in this victory celebration. But as they passed by, those that lined the streets, they would holler insults at them. They would, they would throw things at them. They would, they would ridicule them and, 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 and heckle them. You didn't want to be the main attraction at one of the, as one of those public spectacles. But I understand also that it was a, a, a horrendous thing that they did. But this verse says that Jesus has turned his captors into captives displaying them in his victory celebration. See, the Colossians, they participated in that victory, and so do we. We don't have to follow false teachers. We don't have to give in to our sin or even to fear Satan. Jesus is the victor, and he is triumphed at the cross I love this because in 1 Corinthians 15, it says this. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this one word in the Greek text also is in the perfect tense. And it means that we have the victory and it's forever finished. (laughs) It's like God was flashing a news headline around the world. Redemption complete. 
Redemption accomplished. Redemption is totally finished. It's done. And one day he's going to lead all the conquered forces of evil in his victory procession. You see, so great, so great, so massive is the justification, our greatest justification in Christ. So perfect was his work on the cross. And so just is Almighty God in justifying you that in the book of life, there will be no asterisk by your name. Even though we may deserve it, even though that may be what we've earned, there will be no asterisk by your name. Because of Christ's atoning work on the cross for you, you truly belong to the kingdom of heaven. See, I believe that one of our greatest problems in our society is our guilt. We have lots of guilt. And the problem is, is we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with the guilt that we carry. We try to talk ourselves out of it. We tell ourselves that what we did wasn't all that bad, but we still feel guilty. I mean, some people try to deal with their own guilt by punishing themselves, you know, by, by not allowing themselves any joy, or some think that one of the, the causes of neurotic behavior lies with guilt. And we do bad stuff to ourselves to punish ourselves for our sins. But understand, forgiveness is good for you. Forgiveness is good for you. It's God's way to handle guilt. Is forgiveness. When we come to Christ, when we accept him as our Savior and Lord, when we acknowledge him that, that he is the master of our life, when we confess our sins to him, he gives us complete forgiveness. The asterisk by your name is removed. It's gone forever. And it stands that way forever. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. So let me ask you a question this morning. What do you do with all of your asterisks? What do you do with all of those? Take it to Jesus. Take those to Jesus. He paid for your sin. He erases the asterisks. He takes the page and he nails it to the cross. And it stays there forever. That certificate of debt, that IOU, it's nailed to the cross forever. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Amen. I mean, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is all that you need. He is the one who holds it all together. He is all-sufficient. 
He's the one who spoke this world into being. He's the one who created us. He is the one that holds it all together. He is the one who died for us. He is the one who redeems us. And on that day, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is going to raise me. See, he is our overflowing, sufficient Christ. You are complete when you are in him. If you have Christ, you have everything that God has for you. Nothing more is necessary. But there's one of two options. Either you're going to pay for your sin yourself or Jesus Christ will. I can't urge you strongly enough because your sin debt has been paid. You must receive it though by asking Jesus to come in and to be your Lord and Savior. Praying a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I ask you to, to, to wash me clean. I recognize you are the Son of God, and I want you to come in and live within me. And Scripture tells us if we will pray that prayer, that he will come in and abide within us. And you know what? When we do that, it means there will never be an asterisk by our name. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, we thank you for this time. I pray, Father, in this time of response, Father, that we would respond to your gospel, your good news. But Father, I'm not going to get what I deserve. Lord Jesus, you took the punishment for me. And I pray, Father, that that would be true for everyone who can hear my voice. That if they've never acknowledged him as their Lord and Savior, that today they would do it. So they too could sing, it is well with my soul. Holy Spirit, Fill this place. Holy Spirit, fill our hearts. We welcome you. Guide us as we seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.